Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Megan. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. We also have the plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are jumping in today, we are on day 28, which is the last day where the day of the month actually lines up with the day of the plan. After this, it's pure chaos, and then you'll actually have to know what the numbers are. So let me tell you, listeners, it's an exciting time. Uh, Also, if you have any questions, we love to answer them. You can get those questions to us by emailing info at grove.church. Just make sure to put in the subject line that it's a podcast question. That way it's sent to us. Uh, You can also DM the Grove Church uh, Facebook or Instagram accounts. Again, make sure that you're putting in a podcast question. That way it gets sent to us because otherwise it might never get sent to us. And that's just, that's no fun. Well, Megan, welcome back. This is your second episode now. Thank you. This is so fun. Um, I will say we are in Exodus, which is one of my all-time favorite Bible books. When I saw that we were going through the plagues, I was like, ah, Megan's going to love this. So <laughs> it'll be it'll be it'll be a fun one, listeners. With no further ado, let's go ahead and dive into the Old Testament. Okay, so last week we left off and it was kind of like if you have a TV show, the end of one episode is, you know, it, it sets up the beginning of the next one. So the end of our readings last week was Moses and Aaron just arriving in Egypt and getting ready to see Pharaoh. So it's kind of like, you know, the music swells, they're looking up over the hills, Egypt is before them. And then this week we're actually getting into, I mean, we're getting into everything that happens. I spoiled it earlier. We're getting the plagues this week. So we're moving, we're moving through a big chunk of Exodus. Uh, and so again, we saw Moses and Aaron getting ready to see Pharaoh. That's exactly what we see. Uh, At first, the ask is not for complete freedom, but rather for the people to be given a release of three days to go into the wilderness to sacrifice. So they don't lead off with, hey, Pharaoh, can you release like your entire massive workforce from slavery for, you know, for for no reason that you can see? The original ask is, hey, we want we need to go sacrifice to our God. Uh, Pharaoh's reply is that I don't know Yahweh. So why why should I care? Obviously, that's my paraphrase. But Pharaoh's just kind of saying, who cares? No, again, get back to work is kind of what he says. Uh, in fact, Pharaoh thinks that the answer to the problem is to make the work even more difficult. After all, the reason they have time to think about this whole sacrificing to their God thing is probably because they aren't busy enough. Again, this is Pharaoh's idea, not mine. Uh, and so his thought is, you know, so one of the, apparently one of the big things that the Israelites do is they make bricks for, you know, obviously if you, if you look at Egypt, there's a lot of things that are built using brick. Uh, and so they would have straw that they need in order to build the bricks. Well, Pharaoh's decided instead of giving them the straw and telling them to make bricks, now the Israelites have to go out, collect the straw, bring it in, and then make the bricks with it after that. But their quotas aren't changing. So basically, Pharaoh wants the exact same amount of work done while making it twice as hard to do. Um, obviously, the Israelites can't reach their quotas under these new conditions, and the foremen are horribly beaten. So the Israelite slaves who are kind of in charge of the whole thing, they are horribly beaten. Uh, they cry out to Pharaoh and saying, essentially, why are you striking your servants? Uh, and they are told that they are lazy and to get back to work. So Pharaoh, his yoke is not exactly easy or light, is, is uh, I guess a way that we could describe it. Uh, and then we get some nice foresh- foreshadowing as to what the, ad- the attitude of the Israelites is going to be for a I mean, for a while, this is basically going to be the attitude of the Israelites until we get into the second half of Deuteronomy. So this is going to be, we're going to be a few months at least. I guess I don't know exactly. I guess we got through Genesis in like, when like 20 days. So we'll probably get through the half of Deuteronomy somewhere in March, I guess. I don't know. I guess I could look up the plan and see where we're at, but but who knows. 
Uh, Anyway, so this is Exodus chapter 5, verses 20 through 23. And it says, When they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. And they said to them, sorry, I should say, this is the Israelite foreman who had just uh, been told by Pharaoh that you're lazy and get back to work. Uh, And they said to them, May the Lord look upon you and judge you because you have made us repulsive in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done harm to this people and you have not rescued your people at all. So everyone's getting a little impatient. The Israelites are like, you know, hey, this whole freedom thing sounds kind of overrated. Now Pharaoh just hates us. And then Moses apparently expected God to kind of just first times the charm and Pharaoh's going to release everyone. Obviously, that's not what's going to happen. Uh, and Yahweh replies to Moses, but he's he's honestly surprisingly, at least to me, surprisingly, uh, he's pretty patient with them. So uh, God's a better, obviously, God is a better person than I am because I can't imagine I would be this patient when it's like, dude, it's been like a day. Come on, give me some time here. Uh, but God is patient with the Israelites and he promises that he will bring his people out of Egypt and back into the land that he promised them. Uh, Moses also complains that Pharaoh won't listen to him since he's bad at the whole public speaking thing, but God lets it slide that time. So if you remember the last time Moses brought that up, God kind of went on his whole who made man's mouth rant, but this time he's just like, okay, Moses, come on. Just and, and, and in fairness, Moses just kind of needs to get over it a little bit because he, uh, he brings it up a lot. This is not the last time Moses will bring that up. Uh, after this, the chapter ends with a list of the heads of some of the tribes of Israel. So not a genealogy. It's more of like a, uh, a census almost. Uh, so we have, but it's not all of Israel. So we have the heads of Reuben and Simeon are named first, and then we get a deep dive into Levi. And that's the last son of, or that's the last tribe of Israel that we get. So it kind of, it just goes through the firstborn, stopping at Levi. Levi, remember, is the tribe of Moses and Aaron. Uh, and it's also the tribe that the priests are going to come out of as well. So uh, we find out from this that uh, Moses' parents' names are Amram and Yohebed, or Jochebed, I don't know how you say it, but Anyway, I guess, Megan, you're on this week's yep. episode, so you know these things. So try this. Yochebed. Yochebed. There you go. Yeah. With Cough little, it up. A little bit of phlegm in there. Uh, and then we're also introduced to some notable people, some notable Levites that are going to come up, not necessarily anytime soon, but as we get through the rest of the Pentateuch, uh, you will meet Eleazar, Phineas, Nadab, Abihu, and Korah, uh, some of whom we're going to meet for good reasons and some of whom we're going to meet for bad reasons, but I'm not going to spoil who's who, but remember those names, Eleazar, Phineas, Nadab, Abihu, and Korah are all priests that kind of come up for one reason or another. And then at the close of the chapter, Yahweh once again tells Moses to go talk to Pharaoh and Moses once again replies again, Lord, I'm unskilled in speech. This is, this is clearly a massive thing. This is a massive stumbling block for Moses and he just thinks he can't do it because of when we don't know, it's kind of, it's, it's speculated upon. I kind of interpret it as he's just not good at it. Some people interpret it as there's some type of a speech impediment, maybe like, did Moses have a stutter? Um, I, I kind of just tend to, I don't know. I've met enough people in my life who are terrified of getting up and speaking in public or just aren't good at it that I kind of just think that's what's most, that's what's going on with Moses right now. But I don't know, Megan, if you've got any thoughts on that. Well, I, I haven't looked up the Hebrew for what he says, but if he's saying like, I am a stuttering mouth or I can't, uh, with Hebrew, there are idioms. And so it could be that he does have a speech impediment, or it really could just be figurative for I'm not a good speaker. So we don't know for sure. Um, but I will say, so moving on to day two in the Old Testament reading, 
Um, this is what's wonderful about God. So Yahweh actually gives him a concession, and he deals with Moses' protest about being a bad public speaker. So he says, all right, I'll let you off the hook a little bit. I'm going to bring in Aaron to help. So Aaron is Moses' brother. Okay, he will eventually become the first high priest of Israel. Spoilers. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, and so God tells Moses this. He says, you'll be like God to Pharaoh, and Aaron, your brother, will be the prophet. So what he means by this is the prophet's job is always to hear God's voice directly and then to tell God's message to the people. So Yahweh is still working through Moses, giving him a direct message. And then Aaron, though, will do the public speaking piece of this. So now we have a partnership with Moses and Aaron. And then Yahweh tells Moses, here's what's going to go down. Okay, Pharaoh's not going to listen and his heart will be hard. Um, The hardening of the heart is a very interesting ancient Near Eastern uh, concept that is really deep in Egypt. So if you want to look that one up, go ahead and get out the encyclopedia and go for it. But in the Bible, it just means that he is obstinate. Okay, Pharaoh is completely obstinate, and he's going to refuse to let you guys go. But God promises to bring judgment on Egypt and bring his people out with mighty acts and miracles. And this is going to be a direct confrontation to Pharaoh's claim to be a god. He, God is going to prove that he is the one true God beyond any doubt. So I'm going to read from Exodus 7, 3 to 5, and this is Yahweh speaking. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So in Exodus, there's a lot of amazing, glorious themes. I told you I love it, but um, this whole thing about emancipation is big in Exodus, that God is setting his people free in all kinds of ways, and also that he is proving he is God. He is. There's not going to be any doubt because of what we're going to see God do in this book. So then Moses and Aaron do exactly as God tells them. And so when Pharaoh asks for a sign, Aaron throws down his staff. His staff is a walking stick, and there's a whole cool history about the walking stick uh, what they would do, they would they would mark on their stick every time something um, would happen in their life that's significant, a victory, God doing something. And the staff even had these marks of like your testimony on it. So it's pretty cool that he uses his staff, you know, to do these wonders from God. So he throws it down, it becomes a snake, but then the Egyptian sorcerers do the same thing, okay? But here's cool. Aaron's staff swallows up the Egyptian one, so that's pretty cool. Take that. Yeah, take that. I mean, there you go, you know. Uh, But Pharaoh was not convinced, and true to Yahweh's predictions, he won't let them go. So then now Yahweh proceeds to begin his judgment of Egypt with, dun-dun-dun, the ten plagues. Okay. This is what you came for, listeners. I know. This is is it. Okay, you cannot say the Old Testament is boring. Okay, there is a bunch of crazy stuff going to happen. The 10 plagues are 10 disasters that struck the land of Egypt as judgment from God, and they eventually culminated, spoiler alert, in the death of the firstborn, okay, after which Pharaoh will let them go. But, okay, so then we have the first few plagues. The first plague, okay, is water turned to blood. So Aaron and Moses stand at the bank of the Nile. Aaron stretches out that staff, okay, the same one that turned into the snake, and they rebuke Pharaoh, okay, and they say, you are going to know that Yahweh is God because of this, okay? So then the Nile turns to blood, and basically all the water in Egypt is blood. It starts stinking. The water creatures die. 
But the Egyptian magicians produced the same event this time. And so Pharaoh's heart was still hard. And about a week goes by. Then we have three more plagues. Okay, we've got frogs, gnats, and flies. You can pick which one you think is the worst. Uh, Plague number two is frogs. So they warn Pharaoh again, and then God sends the frogs. Aaron stretches his staff. The frogs swarm and cover the land. But then the Egyptian magicians do it that same thing. But we do see the first glimpse of Pharaoh's hard heart beginning to soften. So he asks the boys to take God away, or I mean, to beg God to take away the frogs. And he says, okay, I'll let you go if you do that. But then Moses does that. Yahweh stops the plague. The frogs are in stinky dead heaps. But then Pharaoh goes back on his word and he refuses to listen again, okay? Now, plague number three is gnats. This time, okay, think Alfred Hitchcock movie, the dust of the earth actually turns into gnats, if you can imagine that. They are all over everything, but this time, okay, the sorcerers in Egypt are not able to produce the gnats. So at this point, every everything now that happens, they can't reproduce it. And they tell Pharaoh, look, dude, this is God. This is the finger of God, they say. But Pharaoh is not going to, he's still not listening. Then we finally have flies. The boys give another warning to Pharaoh, but this time, this is significant. God makes a special statement about Israel with the warning. So Exodus 8, 22 and 23, this is God speaking. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people, tomorrow this sign shall happen. And I love that because God will say this a few times in Exodus. I There is a difference between my people and your people because those who belong to God are taken care of by God. And so, and I, Goshen is just the land where people, where, where Israel dwells within Egypt. It's like their neighborhood. Um, but God is promising that he is going to make a difference and he, and there will be no doubt. So there's massive swarms of flies. They're all over the place. It actually says Egypt was ruined by them. Pharaoh relents and tells the boys, go ahead and sacrifice to God, but only here in Egypt. And Moses says, no, we have to take our three-day journey. And Pharaoh agrees. And Moses is like, don't pull a fast one and cheat us again. Let us go. The Lord removes the flies, but surprise, surprise. Pharaoh again hardened his heart and changed his mind. If there's one thing Pharaoh does it's, or loves doing, it's pulling a fast one on that's the right. Israelites. That's kind, of, that's kind of the theme that goes on. I trust him. I never caught that. <laughs> that was a really good thing that you brought up. That So the, it, that means the Israelites experienced the first couple plagues. Yes. And there wasn't separation. So the frogs and the gnats, the Israelites were also probably getting really annoyed by these. And then after that, there's kind of the dividing line that we'll mm-hmm. see with the rest of the plagues. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's a, cool, that's a cool point there. I also got to say, I feel bad for the... Um, I mean, I know frogs don't experience human emotion, but I feel like the least God could have done was at least let them like do the flies first, then the frogs, and let the frogs eat the flies <laughs> and then die. But instead, they just like die in stinky heaps. No what, what are you going to do? Well, the next plague that we see is the death of Egyptian livestock. Uh, the word all is used, but this seems to be in the hyperbolic sense that we often see in the Old Testament. Um, and so I, I want to talk about that for a little bit because sometimes we – so it's, it says in, in here, all of the livestock of the Egyptians died. And then uh, like five sentences later, it's like – and then the Egyptians hid their livestock. So, so the point there is that um, when we see the word all sometimes in the Old Testament, there's a hyperbolic sense that just means the majority or means the vast majority. Um, you'll see this with a lot of – a lot of the difficult passages in the Old Testament where God goes in and says, you know, kill all of the people. 
Um, that's probably how it's being used as well. In, uh, in, so, in some cases, in some cases, it's not. For instance, Saul gets, uh, this is spoilers, I guess, for way later when we're getting to the reading plan, but uh, Saul is rebuked for not actually putting the entire city, I forgot what city it is, but not putting the entire city to, to death. Um, but the, the point I'm making is that there is kind of this hyperbolic language that gets used once in a while. Uh, the other ways you could interpret it are that, because it talks about specifically the livestock in the field. So maybe anything in stables and pens was not killed, only the things that were, only the livestock that was out in the field. So there's a couple different options for how we uh, interpret this. Anyway, that doesn't make the plague any less dev- devastating. Even if you don't lose all of your livestock, if, you, if you're going to lose a massive portion of your livestock, obviously that's going to that's gonna make eating and providing for your people really hard. But once again, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He's not going to let the people go. Um, after this, we see the plague of boils. Uh, so ev- all of the Egyptians get these really intense kind of just sores that are on their bodies. Um, you can almost kind of think of Job, the book of Job, where he's like scraping pottery to, to relieve the pain. That's probably what a lot of the Egyptians are going through here. Uh, and it, it's so intense that Pharaoh's soothsayers can't even stand before Moses. So normally they're there with the whole thing, but they can't even get up out of bed, it seems like, because of the intense pain that they're feeling. Uh, and then still, Pharaoh is not going to let the people go. Uh, the next plague is the plague of hail. Uh, now here up in up in Washington, where me and Megan live, we get hailstorms once in a while, uh, and they're just you know, they're cute little hailstorms. Like nothing, we don't have to really hide anything. We don't have to take our cars inside. We don't have to worry about anyone getting hurt. It's just kind of like these little tiny pebbles that fall from the sky for a little bit. It is what it is. Um, but in other parts of the country, when you think hail hailstorm, you're probably thinking of really serious large balls of hail that are falling down. Um, that's what this is. So I, I, again, I, if you're listening, I think Texas gets really bad hailstorms, if I remember correctly. I don't remember. But you know, if you're in another part of the country that gets bad hailstorms, think about that. If you're up here in the Pacific Northwest, don't think about our hailstorms. These these, that's not what's going on. Um, but Moses gives everyone fair warning to bring what livestock they may have remaining back inside. So this is where we see Pharaoh's servants they're doing this they're bringing a bunch of uh they're bringing a bunch of the livestock inside and this is where i think we see a break between the attitude of pharaoh and the attitude of the egyptians because i think you can clearly see the the soothsayers like megan brought up they're already saying we can't replicate this like this is the hand of god and you kind of get this idea that the people are starting to realize hey these plagues are the real deal and they're not just going to go away and pharaoh is kind of the last I shouldn't say the last holdout, but he's he's one of the last holdouts as far as his attitude goes. He is not going to let the people go. Um, although with the hailstorm that comes, Pharaoh is finally convinced. Or is he? I don't know. So we'll go to Exodus chapter 9, starting in verse 27. It says, Then Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. That's quite the statement. That is an incredibly humble statement that Pharaoh is making to Moses and Aaron because he's, he's, he's putting Yahweh above everything else and he's admitting to his own sin. He says, plead with the Lord for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail and I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to, them, said to him, as soon as I go out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will no longer be hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. So Moses knows that there's other stuff happening right now. Uh, And I'm going to go ahead and skip ahead to verse 33. It says, so Moses left the city from his meeting with Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord and the thunder and the hail stopped and the rain no longer poured on the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and the thunder had stopped, 
he sinned, and again, and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Um, so yeah, so Moses is no dummy. He understands that even, like, like I said, like this is an incredibly humble statement that Pharaoh makes when he says, Yahweh is the righteous one, and my people are the wicked ones. Um, Moses still sees through that, and he knows that it's, it's going to be just like God said. Pharaoh's heart is going to continually be hardened. Um, so on to the locusts. So when they, when, when they first asked to go, Pharaoh's allowed, allows only the men to go. So Moses comes back and says, let my people go. Uh, Pharaoh's like, okay, just, just the men, women and children have to stay here and you can go out and do your sacrifices. Uh, Moses says that, no, it has to be every Israelite. Pharaoh refuses. And this is when we get a plague of locusts. Um, this is an important thing to bring up because locusts, when we think of them today, we think, ew, gross, it's locust. Or if you were a kid like me, you're like, oh, cool. I mean, I'm thinking grasshoppers, I guess, but that's a kind of a similar bug. Um, for the ancient people, a locust plague or a swarm of locusts would have been a terrifying thing because what do they do? They eat your crops. And if there's one thing that you can't, like today, if all of a sudden all of the food in my house spoiled, which actually happened like a few months ago, the power went out, we didn't realize it. And all of the food in our house overnight. And so a bunch of the food in our house, or at least in the fridge and stuff was starting to go bad. And so I had to go, I had to wake up early, go to the grocery store and I loaded up a cooler with a bunch of food. So Ashley had stuff and she could feed Joel and everything like that. Um, In the ancient days, if all of your food is gone, you can't just go to the grocery store. Like we have access to food in a way that ancient peoples would have never dreamed that they, that they could. And so all of a sudden, all of your crops, your, your future sustenance being destroyed is a massive thing. So a, a swarm of locusts would not have just been you gross. It would have been a, a, a terrifying thing unless you're John the Baptist. Then you think, Ooh, yum lunch. So that's a little John the Baptist humor for you. Or if you go to Mariners games, you can eat grasshoppers as well. So it's, it's a good time. Uh, and so anyway, Oh, Megan. I love that John the Baptist ate locusts and wild honey because I always like to say he ate the devil for breakfast. Oh, Oh, yeah. There you go. I like it. (laughs) Uh, And so eventually uh, Pharaoh once again asks for forgiveness. But when the locusts are carried away from a wind from Yahweh, Pharaoh again refuses to let the people go. So you're starting to get this idea here. Uh, The penultimate plague is darkness falling over the land for three straight days. Um, And I think. You can match up a lot of the plagues to specific Egyptian gods. Some of them you kind of have to stretch it a little bit, but the two that I think are the most obvious, and I don't think it's an accident that these are the final two plagues, is the chief gods of Egypt were going to be uh, Ra, Amun-Ra, the sun god, and then you would have Osiris, who is kind of the god of the underworld. And Amun-Ra is the son of Osiris. I, so I, I do not think it's an accident that the final two plagues are going after those last two gods. Um, I won't spoil, I guess, everything going on with, obviously, Megan's going to be talking about the last plague. Um, but with if the Egyptians are worshiping Amun-Ra, the sun is what's bringing life to their crops along with the Nile. Those are kind of the two things that work in tandem. And Yahweh here is showing that he has complete power over the sun. This isn't some kind of battle between him and Amun-Ra to see who gets to do it. This is just straight up Yahweh declares it, and it is so. Uh, And so this is Exodus chapter 10, verses 24 through 29. It says, uh, and this is after the, the, the nation of Egypt has been in darkness for three days. It says, then Pharaoh called for Moses and said, go serve the Lord. 
Only let your flocks and your herds be left behind. Even your little ones must go with you. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings, so that we may sacrifice them to the Lord. Therefore our livestock shall go with us, not a hoof shall be left behind. For we shall take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And until we arrive there, we ourselves do not know with what we shall serve the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Be careful. Do not see my face again, for on the day when you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, You have spoken correctly. I shall never see your face again. Oh, foreshadowing. That's an intent. If this was a movie, that's like, that's one of the big scenes. And Megan's going to let us know what happens next. It really is like a movie, you know, because it's this big face off and it's like, you're right. I am never going to see your face again. And then the next phase happens. So now we're into the 10th and final plague. And, you know, if you think about Israel, it's interesting because from our frame of reference, we know that, like, we know what happens. We know the end of the story. We know about Jesus. We know about their sacrificing in the wilderness, you know, the Israel people with Moses. But they don't know any of this. All they know is slavery. They don't even understand really much about Yahweh at this point. And so they are in so much slavery that they are like, what's going to happen? Right. So you can imagine how crazy all of this is. Um, Now, this 10th plague is about to occur, and this is Yahweh will tell Moses, after this one, Pharaoh actually will let you go. In fact, he will drive you away, okay? So he tells Moses to have the Israelites ask their neighbors for jewelry, and in this way, they're plundering the Egyptians, so they're taking some of their wealth, although the jewelry, spoiler alert, might get them into some trouble later in the wilderness, so we're going to see what happens there. Um, But the final plague is going to be the death of every firstborn male in the land. So it's very sad. You know, it is always sad when an event of death occurs for anyone, even if they are our enemies. And there is, even when the Jewish people celebrate Passover, there is, there is always a sorrow about that. Um, But I'm going to read here about what God, what God says. So uh, Exodus 11, four through seven. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight, I will go out in the midst of Egypt And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again. But not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So there again, it's specific. God is making a distinction between Egypt and Israel. But if you just heard the language of what he said, is that every firstborn in Egypt, even the slaves, is going to die. So how is this going to happen? Why are the Israelite firstborn sons not going to die? There needs to be something special because he even specified every, even the slave kids, okay? So, um, according to Yahweh, every firstborn, but as we move into chapter 12, we're going to read about Passover, which is really, really awesome, okay, and why the firstborns of Israel don't actually die. So, Pharaoh's heart is still hard until after this plague occurs. So, Passover starts here with instructions in chapter 12 about the blood of the Passover lamb being offered to cover the Israelites so that the death angel will not kill their firstborns. Okay, so this is going to be the provision. They are instructed to take a male lamb from a sheep or a goat without blemish. Okay, so a perfect lamb without blemish. 
kill this lamb at twilight, take some of its blood, and put it on the doorposts and the lintel of their homes. The lamb had to be roasted and eaten in its entirety the same night, so they had to roast it, not boil it, and eat it all that night or burn the rest in the morning. They had to eat it dressed up, ready for travel, ready to take off, and they had to eat it in a hurry because we are out of here, right? Now, if you're an Israelite, though, you're like, what? Like, what? what's why? You know, you'd be like, I don't understand. We don't put animal blood on our doors, right? But we can see, if you've ever read about Jesus, that he is called the Lamb of God. And there is a, obviously a direct connection here that without the blood of Jesus, none of us could be forgiven and that we would experience eternal death without Jesus and without his blood. And so, but it's beginning here with Passover. So I'm going to read Exodus 12, 12 through 14. So I, for I, this is God speaking, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, hence the name Passover, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So then um, I will say here, Passover is absolutely wonderful. I celebrate it every year. It's very special. And in the Passover celebrations, the Jewish people, of course, they still celebrate today. A lot of Christians do too. Passover is really like the Jewish Thanksgiving, right? And every time they celebrate it, they tell this whole story in detail. And if you get into it, you can buy 10 Plagues Finger Puppets. Whoa. (laughs) And yes, I have bought them and used them amongst my friends as an adult celebrating Passover before. It's a lot of fun. Um, But in all seriousness, there's a lot of beautiful things in Passover that point straight to Jesus. A lot of symbolism that is really, really cool. So I I I encourage you to check it out. So in this chapter, though, God is giving instructions about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is part of Passover. It's a week-long celebration of the Passover, and that's still part of how they celebrate it today. It always happens right around Easter. Okay, it's right around Easter time. It is also the beginning of the of the Jewish year is here because it begins at Passover. Um, it is also so important to the people of Israel, the Jewish people, right? This is a huge part of their history. and It never has happened before in history, an entire slave people coming out of a nation in one day. And, um, and it's still a big part of who they are. So this story will always be so important, right? And important to us. Um, so then at midnight, God does strike down all the firstborn, but the reason that he doesn't go into the Israelite homes is the blood of the lambs on the doorposts, right? And then, of course, is the Egyptians are completely overwhelmed with grief. And finally, Pharaoh says, get out of here. So true to Yahweh's word, he drives them out, not only permission, but he is like, get, get out of here. And weirdly enough, Pharaoh even asks them to bless him. He's like, and please bless me on your way out, okay? Because he's realizing he needs the blessing of this God. And then we have the Exodus. So we have the people of Israel are rushing out of Egypt in a hurry. And you can just imagine, put yourself in their place. This is amazing. They are dressed. They have done this whole symbolic lamb thing. You know, they are being rushed out. They've got gold. They've got their livestock. They are dressed for travel. They're rushing out. They don't live in their bread because there isn't any time, you know, and they they even had their, you know, their kneading bowls on their arm and stuff. 
Uh, Their enemy was so sick of them because of God's wonders that even the enemy is like, get out of my face. So I love that about God. Um, They all leave with their livestock. The scripture says 600,000 men plus women and children. There are uh, scholarly debates about what that number really is, if it really is millions or not. But regardless, it's a ton of people, right? An entire nation. Um, They went out from Egypt 430 years after they came in under Joseph and I love Exodus 12, 42, which just says that this is this was a night of watching by the Lord, a night of watching that God is like, I am here, I am bringing you out. And by his own arm, you know, he is he is leading them out. And I love it. Um, and God has proven that he is the Lord. He has brought his people out all at once out of slavery. And then there are some more instructions as to keeping Passover celebrations. Yeah, and the two that kind of stand out to me as we as we move into the next chapter, God 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 really establishes that the Passover is to be a holy day that is celebrated kind of in perpetuity. Um, and the the two points that really stick out to me is number one, every firstborn, including the animals, are to be sanctified to Yahweh. Um, and so remember that these are all of the the humans and the creatures who would have died if God did not have mercy on them. Um, so essentially, God's point there is that you were spared from the Passover or spared from the angel of death because of the Passover, and because of that, you are now sanctified to me. You kind of it's it's almost like a kind of like a Nazarite vow, not mm-hmm. obviously the same intensity, but it's it's kind of this moment of saying like you you belong to the Lord. So I think that's really beautiful there to remind all of those people that you would be dead if not for the mercy of God. Uh, and then the cows have no idea what's going on, but you know, they're sanctified before the Lord too. So there you go. Um, and then the second thing is that the Passover is to be remembered and celebrated forever. Uh, God imagines sons asking their fathers, what are they celebrating? And then the fathers reply with a powerful hand, Yahweh brought us up out of Egypt from the house of slavery. Um, we're going to see how that goes in a, in a future episode, not that far away, but that's not exactly what the Israelites are going to say. Not even generations in the future, just a few months in the future. But anyway, we don't need to get, we won't get to that this week. So no more, no, we're thinking about happy things right now. Uh, so then we read that the Lord guides his people, uh, as a pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he brings them to the Red Sea, or I believe the Sea of Reeds is actually the, uh, the proper translation there, but it's a, it's around that area. Uh, God then warns Moses that he has hardened Pharaoh's heart once again, and that he will be chasing down the Israelites. But Yahweh makes it clear that he will be glorified in this. So it, it kind of reminds me of when Jesus comes across the man who's born blind and the disciples ask him, was it for his sin or for the sin of his, his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. It's for my, it's so I might be glorified so that God can be glorified. Uh, this is the same thing. Pharaoh's heart, God, it straight up just hardens Pharaoh's heart, sends him out there. And why is he doing this? Because he wants to make clear to Egypt, to Israel, and to the entire world that he is the one true God. And he's going to prove it here with the armies of Egypt. Uh, as the armies of Egypt approach, the Israelites grumble about how they are all about to die and they should have just saved slaves in Egypt. So way to go, Israelites. Come on, like have a little bit of faith here. Uh, and then Moses tells the people not to fear. And God tells Moses to tell the people to get a move on, get moving towards the Red Sea. Uh, and so the people move towards the sea and God moves the pillar of smoke between the armies of Israel and the, sorry, between the armies of Egypt and the people of Israel. Uh, Moses stretches out his hands and the sea parts. I think sometimes we skip past this. That would have been incredible to see. So God opens up the the sea 
and the people of Israel begin marching through it. And the the Egyptians kind of, uh, this is me and Nathan talked last week about how the Prince of Egypt has kind of ruined a, a little bit of the story of Moses. For us, great movie, but there's things I have in my head that are not what they are in scripture because I'm thinking of the movie. Uh, so for the, the Egyptians chase after them right away. This isn't like a thing, like in the movie, they kind of get held back and then they get released. Um, they are held back in a sense because they're having a hard time making their way through the pillar, the pillar of smoke and God is intentionally basically messing with their chariots. So they keep, they keep getting stuck. They keep moving when they shouldn't be moving. And the Egyptians are even saying as they're, as they're chasing down the Israelites, uh, hey, we should stop because clearly their God is fighting on their side, but the armies keep going. Uh, and so this is, we'll see what happens here. So this is in Exodus chapter 14, verses 26 through 31. And it says, then the Lord said to Moses, reach out with your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So at this point, the Israelites have made their way completely through. The Egyptians are still make, trying to chase them down. So Moses reached out his Sorry, listeners. Moses reached out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak. While the Egyptians were fleeing right into it, then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Pharaoh's elite army that had gone into the sea after them, not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on the right and on the left. So the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power uh, power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So one of the most dramatic, incredible miracles that we see in the Bible, um, in any other time in history, if you are pinned against the sea, that is a disaster. If you look at like a bunch of battles that turn into massacres, it's because the armies get driven uh, into either up to a river, they get driven up to the sea, there's no escape, and then they just start getting absolutely slaughtered. That is what the Israelites are expecting to happen right now. The Israelites were expecting they're pinned up against the sea, the Egyptian armies are going to come, and, and all of them are about to be killed. And then God, completely outside of anyone's expectations, opens up the sea. The people are able to escape, and then not only does he open up the sea, again, God is showing his mastery over everything in nature. He closes up the sea again so that the thing that the thing that the Egyptians thought was their advantage, the fact that the sea was right there, turns out to be the, the actual thing that overthrows them and kills them. So really cool miracle. I, I just love, I love the story so much. I do too. So, and I love that in in chapter fifteen on this next day of reading, we get the song. There's a beautiful long song about. It says the song of Moses, and so this is what it's actually was sung by Moses and Israel. And I'm going to read just a little bit so we can enjoy a little bit of it. So it's really cool that Scripture includes this. It's almost like whenever they wrote this down later, it's like they'll always remember this song, right? And they had to include it because it was so amazing. So I will just read Exodus fifteen one through seven. But of course, please read the whole thing, which I hope you will. Okay, then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, 
and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. So the song is very beautiful in praising God for deliverance. There is a lovely bit in here about Miriam, the sister of Moses, dancing with tambourines with the women and shouting. So anyone, any one of you who is that that one tambourine player in church, this is your this is your chapter, okay? <laughs> um, oh no, but I love people who worship with all their might, right? Israel, uh, led by Moses now, though, okay, now they're going to go out into the wilderness, okay? So now they have to journey into the wilderness, and the real testing will begin uh, to see what they're made of, okay? This is a harsh and barren place. I have seen the southern border of, of the Promised Land. Um, when I was in Israel, I got to stand up on Maktesh Ramon, which is the largest erosion crater in the world, and there's a lookout. And I mean, it there it is really stark. It looks scary. Like the, it's it's like, can you even live walking across that? There's nothing there. Very very harsh. So they they just start journeying. They are without water for three days. Okay, so really hot. They're thirsty. This is like what April or maybe you know March, April, May. They're really hot. Um, they come to a place called Mara. Now that name means bitter because the waters were bitter and undrinkable. So they're already starving of thirst and they can't drink this water. So Oh, they start grumbling against Moses. Uh, common fo- a common thing for Israel, but they're very thirsty. Okay, understandably. So God tells Moses, hey, you see that piece of wood over there? Throw it into the water. It's going to become sweet. Okay, which doesn't quite make sense to us, but so, it, so be it. And God makes a rule for Israel. This is the first rule he has for them, and he tests them. And he says in Exodus 15, 25 to 26, and he cried to the Lord. So this is Moses. And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There, the Lord made for them a statute or a rule, right? And a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I, the Lord, am your healer. Okay, so I love that that's one of the names of God. So they are about two and a half months into the journey at this point, okay? They do end up at an oasis with trees and water, and they're happy for about a minute, okay? And then, of course, they're going to start grumbling. They're going to grumble this time about their hunger. This is not the last time that Israel is going to ask to see the manager about the menu, okay? It's going to happen a lot. This is going to be a problem with them and God. It's just, it is it is funny to see, like... I think there's times where we have to be careful and not think that we would be better than the Israelites. Right. Um, and but there's some passages that are more difficult than others, and some of these are just the the one where they complain, like where God miraculously provides food for them every day, and where they complain about what food it is. That's one where I'm just like, how on earth do you even get to that point? But we'll get there eventually. It's a really good point, and it's just like, okay, guys, because they really did just walk through the Red Sea, like you know, (laughs) so. But they just, they, you know, imagine harsh conditions. They're, hu- they're hungry. I mean, there's, you know, they are getting desperate. And, you know, people, they're hangry, right? They're super hangry. <laughs> and God provides the Snickers. Right. I was just going to say, and they, here we go with the Snickers. Kind of. Kind of. Okay. This is God's version of Snickers. Great intro to the mana section, Evan. Thank you for that. So, but they are whining and they're like, we wish we had died in Egypt because there we had bread and meat. 
Okay. Okay. So I will say there is a really fun song that I have to recommend. If you've ever heard of Keith Green, he was a musician and a preacher of Jesus in the 1970s. He has a really cool song. It's called So You Want to Go Back to Egypt. You can look it up and listen to it. It is really fun. And it's like a playful song, sound uh, sound effects in the background, all kinds of creative things you can make with manna. Really fun. So I recommend that. So God answers the people, though, pretty patiently. He does provide. Okay. And he provides something we call manna. Okay. So I'm going to read in Exodus 16, 4 through 7, God's version of Snickers. Okay. So then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? So they're basically saying, you know what? You're really grumbling against God. Y'all better be careful, okay? Not a good idea. Uh, Now, a couple things. It is bread from heaven. So when, when we think of Jesus being the bread of life, there is a correlation here to manna and Jesus being provided for us and being the bread of life. But anyway, um, the sixth day, they needed to gather twice as much because the thing with manna is that if they gather too much in any given day, it will rot and stink overnight. So they only are supposed to obediently gather as much for every day. And there is something in this when you're in a time of testing and God is giving you what you need each day to make it through. I mean, he's teaching us to trust him, that he provides, that he is our portion, all kinds of things that are really good, but they don't come without every single day, you know, you're walking through it. So this is what they're going through, but God is tangibly giving them this manna every day. Okay, so, um, and then the, the thing with the twice as much on the seventh is so that they can have the Sabbath on the seventh day, okay, which is really important for them as well. Now, the bread is called manna or uh, like manhu in Hebrew, and it just means, what is it? <laughs> because no one knows what it is. They've never seen this before. It's kind of a flaky white substance. It almost looks like coriander seed, the scripture says. It appears each morning with the dew, and it looks like frost on the ground. It Scripture says it has like a honey, kind of a honey taste. So, I mean, maybe it is really like a Snickers. We don't know. Sounds sounds good sounds to me. Sounds good to me. At least it was sweet. I like, you know, I have a sweet tooth, so I I understanding this. Okay. Um, now, the thing about the Sabbath, too, is that, again, I mentioned this on another podcast, but like in the ancient Near Eastern religions, they all saw the seventh day as this cursed thing where bad things would happen. And so it's really significant that Yahweh is turning this around for people, and he's actually making this a day of blessing. And he's marking them as his people, the Hebrews, because they will rem- remember that God has delivered them and that by his own hand, he provides so that they don't have to be slaves and work endlessly in this endless cycle of production and exhaustion and coercion. They can rest because they belong to God. So that's kind of the idea here, that you you get together twice as much. It won't rot on that seventh day because God has given them what they need, and they are no longer slaves. So the manna really was a test every day to see what was in their heart, and they ate it for 40 years. There you go. Uh, well, as we move on to our next chapter, since it's a day ending in Y, the Israelites are complaining. And uh, they, this time they ask for water. So we go back to kind of kind of what happened at Mara there. Uh, Moses asks, why are they testing the Lord? And it, it makes me think of another person who was tempted to test the Lord in the midst of the desert, but didn't do it. But anyway, 
We'll move past that. Uh, that was in Luke, by the way. That was talking about Jesus. Uh, eventually, God tells Moses to strike a rock where water will come out, and that is exactly what happens. So the people are provided for miraculously once again. Uh, we then read that a king named Amalek comes out and he wants to make war with Israel. Uh, and so Moses sends Joshua out in command of the armies. I believe this is the first time that we hear from hear about Joshua. I could be wrong on that. It's the first time we hear at least anything of significance. Uh, Joshua, obviously, he's got a book of the Bible named after him. He's gonna be he's gonna be a major player here in a, in a, I guess a few months now. But after the Pentateuch, especially, is when you're gonna really see Joshua take charge. Uh, but right now he is in charge of the armies, so he leads the armies of Israel out against the armies of Amalek. Uh, Moses goes on a hill to watch the battle and to pray to God for Israel's deliverance. Uh, when Moses keeps his hands raised, Israel is prevailing in the battle, but when his hands drop from being tired, uh, they begin to lose. So Aaron and Hur see this, and they each kind of – the, the idea is, I think, is that they um, – they go on the sides of Moses and they kind of put his arms on their shoulders. And so they're propping up Moses' arms uh, and then the people of Israel are victorious in the battle. So really cool moment there. You kind of see it's a, uh, I was going to say it's a team effort. I mean, God is clearly the one winning this battle here, but you see, I, I love the way that you see Aaron and her supporting Moses in that moment. Uh, after this, Jethro comes from a visit. So remember, Jethro is Moses' father-in-law. He's the high priest of Midian. And we, I don't, remember us getting a verse, but apparently at some point Moses had sent away Zipporah and his sons, uh, his, his wife and his sons. And so Jethro is coming back with them and they're going to rejoin the people of Israel. So it might've been hopefully just for safety. Hopefully it's not like Moses being a jerk or something. Uh, but Moses shares all that God has done and Jethro is really encouraged. So you get that moment and you kind of get this idea, not this idea, Jethro says, now I know uh, that Yahweh is, is the mighty one. Uh, which makes me think, and this is just like, I, I haven't done enough research into this, so I could be completely wrong. Um, but it makes me wonder, like, I, I, I usually think of the Midianites under Jethro as being Yahweh worshipers only. But I wonder if they were polytheistic, and this is basically Jethro confirming that Yahweh is the main one. Again, this is just a thought that I'm thinking. I, I'd, I'd have to dive deeper into it. But I mean, regardless, they clearly know the Lord and, and worship him as well. So, but kind of an interesting thing there. Uh, after this, Jethro observes Moses sitting in judgment over the different cases that the Israelites bring before them. Uh, and so this is one, of, I love this just because it's just, uh, you know, it's just his father-in-law coming in, seeing something wrong, giving some advice. Uh, Jethro basically tells Moses, cut it out. Like you can't be, there's over a million people here. You can't be the one who's judging every single case that gets brought before. And he tells him to appoint some judges over tens, fifties, hundreds, thousands, all those different things. And so Moses does that. So Moses takes his father-in-law's advice. Uh, he appoints judges, and that is where we leave off this week's reading in the Old Testament. So not nearly the uh, not nearly the cliffhanger of last week of Moses and Aaron arriving into Egypt. Right now, everything is going pretty smoothly. The Israelites are grumbling, but everything's going okay. Uh, next week, we're going to get into what happens after that. Moses is going to go up to Mount Sinai, and we're going to get to see some of the the law of God get given. So there you go. Uh, we're going to jump into the New Testament here in a second. But before we do, I do want to take a moment to ask you to leave a five-star review on whatever a podcast app that you're listening on, particularly on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Those are kind of the two that help us really get it out there to more people. Uh, on Apple Podcasts, you can leave a written review. And if you do, we'll read it on the air and give you a shout out just because, you know, that's the kind of people we are. We like to give our listeners a shout out. All right, well, let's jump into the New Testament. 
right. We are picking up in the book of Acts. Uh, As a kind of quick recap of last week, remember that Peter and John had just healed a lame man outside of the temple. So that's the whole silver and gold I do not have story. Uh, The crowds gathered after that because they saw a miracle take place. And then Peter preaches the gospel to them for the second time in as many chapters. This is immediately following, or I guess I shouldn't say immediately, but it's, it's, I think it actually, yeah, it is. It is the chapter after uh, Peter's famous sermon that he gives on the day of Pentecost. So there you go. Uh, Well, as you can imagine, the Sadducees did not care for this too much, so they have Peter and John arrested by the temple guard. Uh, However, the damage is done and the church continues to grow. So it says about 2,000 people were added to the the church. So it's, or I think it's, I believe it says 5,000. So the way I interpret that is that 2,000 people were added on that day. And so the church has grown to a size of about 5,000 in there. So really cool. Uh, The next day, Peter and John are brought before the high priest and a few other bigwigs, including the man that the Pharisees considered the true high priest. Um, I should have written down the names, but I believe it's Annas is the high priest and Caiaphas is the one who the Pharisees consider as kind of the true high priest. Um, remember, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are kind of, I shouldn't say kind of, they're, uh, they're against each other. They are political enemies. They unite because they want to crush Jesus and they want to crush uh, Christianity or the way as it's called at this point, but they're not natural friends, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but they do sit on the council together. Um, So they are asked, Peter and John are asked under whose authority are they preaching? And Peter replies that it is Jesus of Nazareth. And he also says, it's Jesus of Nazareth who you put to death and who rose again. So Peter is, you can clearly see the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in these moments where Peter is, Peter's not afraid. Like this is the guy who not that long ago told a servant girl who had no authority to do anything to him. I've never met Jesus in my life. Go away. And now he's standing before the the Sanhedrin, which is the council that he would have been afraid of. And he's saying, oh yeah, it's Jesus of Nazareth who you killed and who rose again. So I love the change that we see in Peter in these moments. Uh, They send Peter and John out to confer amongst themselves. And I I love this scene. So this is Acts chapter four, starting in verse 13. It says, Now, as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they had nothing to say in reply. But when they had ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What do we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, let us warn them not to speak any longer to any person in this name. And when they had summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them and said, I I love what they say, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, make your own judgment for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. When they had threatened them further, they let them go, finding no basis on which to punish them on account of the people because they were all glorifying God for what had happened. For the man on whom this miracle of healing had been performed was more than 40 years old. So I guess there's, I I, I don't know, I guess the miracle is more impressive because it's an old man instead of a young. I mean, I guess that's true, actually. Like if, I mean, yeah, I guess it's one of those things, but I I would be impressed regardless of if you see a lame man get healed. I don't care how old he is, but uh, I love the bravery. And again, it's the Holy Spirit empowered bravery of Peter and John in that moment where they are saying, look, you decide whether or not we should listen to you or God. Uh, As for us, we're not going to change what we're doing. So, And uh, Megan's going to get into a little bit later, the Sanhedrin continues to meet about this. And there's a man named Gamaliel, and I love love his whole take on the thing as well. But 
I won't spoil that. That's coming up in a little bit. Uh, they continue uh, to preach even more, Peter and John. And then we get an aside about the state of the church. So whenever there was need among them, the people of the church would sell what was needed and they would give the money to the apostles to be distributed. So it's kind of like a, um, I, I guess if you, it, this this word carries a lot of baggage, but it's kind of a voluntary commune is what's happening in this moment. So when I say that, don't think cult or don't think communist like forced down from the government, but it's this idea of they are all sharing what they have in order to make sure that everyone who has need is taken care of. So it's a really beautiful picture of this selfless love that the church is showing one another. Uh, we also see Barnabas, who is apparently a pretty wealthy guy, uh, sell a tract of land that he owed that he owned, and he lays down the full amount before the apostles. So this is, again, this is not a, an insignificant gift. And Barnabas's whole point is, I don't need this land. I want the people of God that I want, I want my brothers and sisters in Christ to be taken care of. And that's what he does. And that gives another couple in the church some crazy ideas. Okay. So now this next bit is going to be a little bit unfortunate, okay, because of people taking some matters into their own hands regarding this thing. So, okay, in Acts chapter 5, there is a couple called Ananias and Sapphira, okay, husband and wife, and they sold some property, but they decided to lie about the cost of it. So instead of laying all of the money at the apostles' feet, they only brought part of it. And somehow Peter knew this. We don't know if he knew it because of the Holy Spirit, very possible, or because somehow someone told him or what. But he knows that they have lied. So he just, he straight up rebukes Ananias and he says, you know what? The devil is the one who filled your heart with lies. And then Ananias dies. Okay. <laughs> so it's really harsh. And, um, but he does die. They bury him. Okay. Three hours later, his wife comes in, says the same lie. And she also is rebuked by Peter and dies. So then verse 11 says, great fear came upon everyone who heard these things. We can see why. But there is a seriousness here with what's going on in the church. And so these people did lie straight to God, like Peter says, and they did pass away. Um, so that is part of what's happening. Now, the apostles are doing a lot of miracles, and even Peter's shadow could heal people. Lots of people are getting saved. It's amazing. There is revival in the church. But um, the religious leaders are jealous. Okay, so they imprisoned the apostles. But an angel came and let them out and told them to preach, which is awesome. Then they get into more trouble with the religious leaders again, and they go before the council. Okay, so Evan called that the Sanhedrin, which is just like their council. It's like, you know, the powers that be, right? You do not want to get in trouble with these guys, and they have authority to kill you. So Peter and the apostles are preaching about Jesus, and again, they're saying, we must obey God rather than men. Love that boldness. Um, the council does want to kill them, but here's where we meet um, Gamaliel, or G Gamaliel, not sure how to say his name, but he reasoned with them, and he was a famous Pharisee, okay? He was very well respected. He was a teacher of Israel, and he was on this council, but he's the one who's, who actually speaks for the apostles, even though he isn't a believer in Jesus, okay? But he has some really good godly wisdom here, and he tells the, the council, be careful, because after all, and he gives like an example from history, if this is from man, like not from God, it's going to fail, right? No matter what you do. But if it's from God, you won't be able to stop them and you'll be opposing God. So that is not a good place to be, right? So he is saying, you know what? This is actually in God's hands. You need to let this go because on the offshot chance that these crazy guys really are right about Jesus, then, you know, you're going to be on, you're going to be fighting God. 
And so the council settled, okay, fine, we'll just beat them. So they just beat them. There you go. No big deal. We're just going to beat you, right? (laughs) But told them not to preach. And I love their response. Okay, Acts 5, 41 through 42. So then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, of course, the name of Jesus. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus or that that the Christ is Jesus. That's a great, great line there. The the Gamaliel thing is really interesting to me because it I don't think uh, my memory might be failing me. I don't think we have a story in scripture about a Sadducee being willing to accept Christ. We have a few Pharisees, um, specifically Nicodemus. Gamaliel here is kind of among them. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, it seems like he was a Pharisee as well. I don't know if you had another name that you were thinking there or not, but... No, I was thinking about the differences between oh, right. Pharisees and Sadducees. Yeah. And and so for me, I think obviously both oppose Jesus and both lead directly to Jesus being, being killed. But the Sadducees oppose Jesus for seemingly mostly political reasons because they are... They're kind of the in-group with the Romans, and they don't want to rock the boat. Um, the Pharisees oppose Jesus for religious reasons. They believe that Jesus is um, upending the Torah, that he's upending the law. And so I think that's the reason you see Pharisees more willing to jump over, because I think some of them are willing to see, I think Jesus is who he says he is. I think he actually is fulfilling scripture. Whereas with the Sadducees, nothing's changed on that front. Uh, the resurrection doesn't change anything because for them, it's still just, we don't want to rock the boat with Rome. Uh, so kind of interesting. I, I think, yeah, I, I love looking into um, the differences there because it, it's hard because and there's no Pharisees or Sadducees in the Old Testament. We just kind of come into the New Testament and the writers of the New Testament assume, oh yeah, you know what these things are. Uh, so it is an important thing to look into, but the, the differences between the two are, are, are really fascinating to me sometimes. Uh, well, moving into our next day of reading, we get, uh, you know, it's pretty intense moments there. People are going in prison. Ananias and Sapphira are killed. Uh, so now we get to everyone's favorite church struggle, which is, of course, logistics. Oh, yeah. So the the day-to-day ministry, how all of that goes. Um, okay. So the Hellenistic Jews are apparently being treated less favorably than the Hebrew Jews. And so a Hellenistic Jew is someone who is more accepting of Greek culture and has allowed themselves to become less culturally Jewish. Um, and so remember, again, speaking of things that happened in between the Old and New Testament, when we leave the Old Testament, Israel is ruled over by Persia. Persia. The Persian kings are overall pretty cool with the Israelites. They let them go back to Jerusalem and worship their gods. Um, after the closing of the Old Testament, we meet a man named Alexander the Great, uh, and he goes through and essentially conquers uh, a ton of that region, most of the known world at, at that point, uh, or at least the known kind of like civilized, big population center areas of the world. Uh, and the Greeks rule over that area of the world for a long time. And so you see that a lot of the Jews, as they're being ruled over by, I believe it's the, is it the Ptolemies? For, yeah, it's the Ptolemies first. And then it's the, uh, I don't remember the, I should have remembered the names anyway. Um, the the Seleucids. Thank you. Yep. So that eventually those are just kind of branches of Alexander's empire. Um, eventually there's a whole big rebellion that's fought about it because one of the Seleucid Kings sacrifice wants to sacrifice a pig to Zeus in the temple of Yahweh, which obviously, uh, is not great. Some of the Jews are okay with this because again, they've been so indoctrinated into Greek culture that they're just fine. Some of them 
are not cool with it. That's where you get the Maccabees and all of that stuff. So uh, there's a big, I, and I'm telling you all this history, not just as like fun facts. The, the, the reason I'm telling you this is because recognize there is a massive tension between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrew Jews. So the Jews who were willing to kind of go along with a lot of the Greek things and the Greek cultures and the Jews who were not. Um, a, a lot of the Hebrew Jews who stuck with um, following the Torah to the letter are going to look at the Hellenistic Jews as traitors, almost like the Samaritan Jewish divide, not quite as intense, but it's definitely, there's, there's definitely a lot of conflict there. Uh, and so you understand that when the Hellenistic Jews are also asking for things to be shared among them, a lot of the Hebrew Jews might just be not willing to do that or give them smaller portions because again, there's that, I guess it's not a racial tension, but there's that kind of cultural tension between the groups. Um, so the apostles know that something needs to be done about this. Like that, no, like we're not in, in Christ. Paul is going to say this obviously later on in Galatians, but there's no Hellenistic Jew and Hebrew Jew. We are all Christians. We are all followers of the way. And so it's not right that one group is getting favored over the other. Uh, and so they also know though, that it would be a waste of time for them to be hands-on with this. So basically, because their their most important ministry is preaching the gospel, doing miracles, making sure that the word of God spreads. They can't be involved in the day-to-day, again, logistics of how are we making sure the food gets distributed evenly. Uh, so I, it reminds me of Jethro with Moses, right? Because it's the same struggle. Moses is Moses doesn't realize this and he's just getting way down into the weeds when he should be doing more important things. And Jethro's like, no, Moses, delegate. Uh, here, maybe the disciples are thinking of that story and they, they realize kind of on their own, we need to delegate this. Uh, so they appoint deacons to oversee the work, um, the most notable of whom are Philip, more on him in a little bit, uh, and then a man named Stephen. Uh, and so this is what we get on Stephen here. This is Acts chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what is called what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both the Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Sicilia and Asia rose up and argued with Stephen, but they were unable to cope with his wisdom. I love that line. (laughs) They were unable to cope with his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. And they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes, and they came up to him and they dragged him away and they brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man does not stop speaking against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that the Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and charge and change the customs from which Moses handed us, sorry, which Moses handed down to us. And all who were sitting on the council stared at him and they saw his face, which was like the face of an angel. So we see here, Stephen, the, the role that he has as deacon, it's not just like, hey, you're in charge of bread now and don't do anything else. Or like, it's not like this lesser job because, you know, I, I, there's a joke that, uh, um, among pastors where like, when you say that uh, you have a servant's heart, it means, oh, you could, can you go stack some chairs? <laughs> like, it's, it's kind of like the joke thing there. Um, and so every time, like, you know, like we're stacking chairs and we're just like, oh, look at our servant's hearts right now. Um, that's not what this is, right? This is, this is not like, Stephen can't really do anything else. This is a moment of Stephen is clearly empowered by the Holy Spirit for for uh, the spreading of the gospel and for miracles and all these different things. And he has the job of overseeing this food ministry as well. Uh, and in our next day's reading, we're going to get a little bit more on Stephen that Megan has here. 
Yes, I love Stephen. I mean, he clearly loves Jesus and is really anointed by God. And and it's a good point that Evan makes because he really was anointed to do this task, even if it's a logistical task. He's very called and anointed. And now, interestingly, he is Hellenistic. So Stephen is a Hellenistic Jew. Some speculate this may be why he was like our first martyr here and they killed him. Some think it's because he was Hellenistic, so that made them even angrier at him. We're not sure. But in any case, he's about to get persecuted. He is our first recorded martyr. The word martyr is just means that somebody who gave their life for Jesus, right? It cost them their life to believe in Jesus. So the high priest questions Stephen, to which Stephen gives a speech going over the history of Israel from Abraham to Moses to the tent of meeting. And finally, he makes a point about God's true dwelling not being in a house made by hands, okay? So that could be a problem for people who really place a lot of stock in the temple, okay? And then he quotes a Hebrew Bible verse from a prophet. So then he rebukes them. Stephen rebukes these Jewish leaders for being stiff-necked. Stiff-necked is an Old Testament term, which means obstinate, okay? Because you won't turn. And rejecting the Holy Spirit and killing the forerunners of Jesus and Jesus himself, and of not keeping the law, okay? So essentially, he's kind of defaming the temple in a sense, because he's like, well, God doesn't really live there. And he's accusing them of law-breaking, which is going to really offend them. And he is claiming that Jesus is a righteous one. They are enraged. They are out of their mind crazy. They don't even, they don't even hold back. They're rushing at him. But it says Stephen looks up and he sees the glory of God with Jesus at his right hand. This is really powerful. But the council, they are rushing at him and they stone him to death. So they are running. Now, stoning, it literally means they throw heavy stones at you until it kills you. Okay. And Stephen is our first recorded martyr in the Bible, as I said. We don't know if he really is the first Christian martyr or just first recorded. Saul is also there nearby, okay? Now, Saul, of course, is important. He will become the Apostle Paul. But at this point, he is a very zealous Jew. He is a Pharisee, okay? And he is approving Stephen's death. Yeah, it's, uh, I, and I love what he says when Stephen, when Stephen dies. He, he kind of gives, a shadow is the wrong word maybe, but he maybe mimics a little bit of Jesus. Remember when Jesus gives up his spirit, uh, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, and you had this passage in here, Acts 7, verses 59 through 60, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then as he was falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Yeah. Uh, and I, I love both those, right? It's Jesus giving up his spirit. And then also, what does Jesus do on the cross? He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Uh, and you see here that Stephen clearly has that in mind. So uh, see, yeah, Stephen is, um, he's not in the Bible very long. Uh, but he's clearly a, he's clearly a, a, a righteous man whose life was changed by Jesus, and he's he's one of the great heroes of the faith because of because of that. Uh, well, moving into our next day's readings, that guy Saul that we were just introduced to, he turns out to be a pretty important guy, like Megan said. Uh, but before we get into the whole Paul thing, he just begins persecuting the church with great intensity, uh, so much so that most of the Christians are forced to leave Jerusalem. So we we get, and he's not not that he's the only person, but he seems to be kind of the ringleader of this. He's kind of the main guy who is doing this persecuting. Uh, but we'll jump back to him here in a bit. So the rest of this chapter, uh, we're going to talk about Philip, who is not Philip the disciple. It seems to be Philip the deacon who we met in the previous chapter. Uh, so he is one of the people who is scattered because of this persecution, and he goes to Samaria. Uh, which again, we just talked about the divide between the Hellenistic and the Hebrew Jews. Uh, remember, there's also a massive dis- divide between the Jews in general and the Samaritans, but that's where Philip is going. Uh, so the Samaritans are now going to receive the gospel. 
Miracles are being done, and many people are being baptized, including a man named Simon, who is a magician. And when I say magician, I don't mean, you know, like I'm doing sleight of hand tricks. I mean, like he's legitimately like trying to practice the dark demonic arts, basically, is what his deal is. Uh, But now he's saved. He's heard the gospel. He believes he's baptized. Awesome. Uh, Notably, however, those being saved have not yet received the gift of the Holy Spirit. So they haven't been empowered by the Holy Spirit for ministry and, and, uh, and all those different things. So with that, Peter and John are sent to Samaria and they begin laying their hands on these new Christians who then receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, Simon, the magician, asked to get this power too, and he is rebuked by Peter and John for thinking that he could buy this gift. And he, they actually kind of utter, utter some curses against him. And then Simon asks for forgiveness and prays or asks them to pray like that none of those things will happen to him. So uh, Simon doesn't really quite get what's going on, but at least at the end, he comes to repentance for that. So, you know, it's, it's a happy ending for Simon, at least, yeah, for now. Uh, the, an angel visits Philip and then tells him to travel to Gaza. Uh, so on his way, Philip meets an Ethiopian man who is a member of the court of the queen. Uh, queen Candace is, is her name. Uh, and he hears the man reading from the book of Isaiah. So he runs up to the chariot and starts a conversation, as you do, you know, when you hear someone reading from the book of Isaiah. Uh, and on the chariot, he leads the man to Christ. So he goes through and he basically explains, oh yeah, when Isaiah is talking about the suffering servant, he kind of, he's going through the messianic prophecies and he's showing how it's all pointing to Jesus. Uh, the man is convinced and he, he basically, he wants to be baptized. And I, I love his attitude because he just pulls over the chariot and he's like, yeah, there's water right here. Let's do it. And so there's no, there's no waiting. He's ready. He wants to be baptized. Uh, so they pull over the chariot and they, uh, Philip baptizes the man in the water right there. And, and this is really incredible. Uh, when Philip brings the man back up out of the water, he's gone. So, and you imagine like the, the, the Ethiopian man, can you imagine what that would have been, what that would have felt like? Cause all of a sudden you just come out of the water, you look to like, maybe you're going to give Philip a hug and it's just, it's just you like that is so, that is so weird and, and miraculous, but um, what happened is God took up Philip and he kind of transported him, teleported, I guess is maybe a weird word to use, but that's kind of, it, it's kind of a modern word that we could think of there, but he miraculously teleports uh, Philip to a town called uh, Azotus, which is a little bit north of Gaza. So it's not like he's not across the world or anything, but he's definitely not in a place that he could have gotten to instantly. And then Philip uh, continues his ministry, eventually making his, I believe, I I should have written down the name, but I believe he makes his way to Caesarea uh, eventually, but there you go. Uh, And that brings us back to Saul. Okay, so now we're back to Saul's story, okay? So we have to think of him in this way, okay? We know he's a religious leader. He's a Pharisee. Um, He is highly trained. He is smart. He knows it all, right? He's flawless in following the law. And he is a zealot, okay? As Evan said, he's kind of the ringleader. He is a terrorist, okay? He is. He is a killer. He does not mind killing people for his faith, okay? Um, and he is a, a dangerous. He makes murderous threats, and he drags people out of their homes. He is against anyone following Jesus, and he wants to intentionally harm them, okay? It can't be any other sugar-coated than that, Okay. Now, he's on the way to Damascus, which is in the north of Israel towards Syria, okay? So all the way up there, and all of a sudden, I'm going to read Acts 9, 3 through 9, about Saul. So now, as he was on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, okay, so here's his voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, 
Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days, and or for three days, he was without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. Okay, so he has just been basically struck blind. He fell down, bright light. He can't see, even those eyes are open, so he's probably terrified, but he's heard the voice of Jesus, okay? The risen Jesus speaking right to him. The people around him heard it, okay? Saul can see it, they couldn't, but now he can't see anything, and he hasn't eaten, eaten at all, no food, no water. So he gets to Damascus. There is a disciple there named Ananias, different than the liar who died a few chapters ago, okay? <laughs> or, or a crazy miracle happened that <laughs> right, we don't right. get. Right. Who knows, right? But this is a different Ananias. Um, so who God chooses, though, and tells him, go and find this Saul guy, lay your hands on him so he can see. But Ananias is afraid, understandably, because this is a terrorist and he protests. But God speaks to him again about Saul being chosen and he goes, okay? He lays his hands on Saul. The scales, something like scales, okay, fall off of Saul's eyes and he can all of a sudden see. He is baptized. So now he's given his faith to Jesus, okay? Now he is baptized, okay? Miraculous conversion, right? He eats something. And of course, he's no longer spiritually blind. He can see Jesus for who he is and he gets his physical sight back. He starts preaching about Jesus. And remember, he's super educated. So God can now use all of that education about the Bible and everything for the, for the sake of the gospel, right? Because now he's on the side, he's on the he's on the right team. Okay, he's now on our team. Okay, um, but of course, as you'll see, some of the disciples are like, I don't, I don't know. He he could just be an undercover terrorist, and I don't blame them for being afraid of that. Um, but he's able to prove because he knows so much about Jesus being the Messiah. Right? He can just prove it. He knows. He can argue. He can talk about it all day long, and so that's cool. But the Jews plot against him because now they're upset that he's preaching Jesus. He escapes Damascus. He goes back to Jerusalem. The church there is afraid of him. And then so others, other people are plotting against his life. He gets sent back to Tarsus, where he's from. The church, meanwhile, is growing in multiple places. Peter heals, heals a paralytic, uh, which then converts to towns. Um, then there's a story about a lady named Dorcas, who was a community servant. She loved helping people. She dies, okay? She's over in Joppa. Joppa is over, way over on the Mediterranean coast, okay? Uh, not that far from Caesarea. Um, but no, farther north of Caesarea, okay? She is in Joppa. She dies. Peter is called to come all the way out here, and then he actually raises her from the dead, causing a lot more conversions, and then he stays in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. There you go. I always feel like Dorcas is in a... Because I think her name is, is it, her name is Tabitha, and she's called Dorcas. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, what an unfortunate... I don't know. It's just in English it sounds bad. I'm sure in Greek it's like, it doesn't mean anything, but it's like, dork. <laughs> <laughs> what a nerd. Uh no, and I think one thing that we always, or at least maybe this is just me, growing up with Paul, um, I always view, I always thought it was like this happens, and then he goes on his missionary journeys. Um, I believe he says he spends ten years under the apostles' teaching. It's something like that. It, it, we get it in the epistles. He talks about himself a little bit there. Um, so it is a reminder that that Paul's miraculous change is not just oh now I serve Jesus. It's also a remarkable humility because Paul is incredibly educated. He's incredibly smart, and he and he humbly listens uh, to the apostles for a very long time before he himself feels equipped to go on these missionary journeys, which we get to next week, not this week, unfortunately. Uh, so then we go to our final day of New Testament reading this week, 
uh, Peter is chilling in Joppa. Uh, and then while he's there, a man named Cornelius has a vision. Uh, he is a Roman centurion, but a God-fearing man. And so and the angel tells Cornelius to send for Peter, which he does. Um, the next day, Peter has a vision of the heavens being opened up and a great sheet that is holding a bunch of unclean food is brought down. A voice tells Peter to rise and eat, which he refuses to do because it's against the old covenant. Uh, so, and, and this, I, I think what Peter probably thinks is happening right now is he's getting a vision and God is like, Peter, sin against me. And Peter's like, Lord, I would never do this. Um, but God tells him what you, what God has cleansed, you are to no longer consider unclean. And this happens three times. And so it kind of calls back to um, when Remember when Peter denies Christ, he does so three times. Remember when Peter, in John 21, when Jesus kind of redeems Peter, he asks him three times, and that's kind of the way that it washes away um, the sin of denial. Not not literally, but it's the way that I guess Jesus kind of recalls Peter to ministry and, and, and reestablishes that call there. And so now we see again, three times like that Jesus is doing this again because he wants Peter to understand, I'm doing something new at this moment. Uh, and then after this happens three times, the vision stops. And right after this, three men approach Peter and they're like, hey, uh, you don't know us. We're from this guy named Cornelius. He wants to talk with you. And so Peter's like, oh, okay, this is crazy. Uh, Peter then meets Cornelius, who is excited to meet with him. And he tells him of the vision. He even like starts kneeling down and Peter's like, get up. I'm, I'm a man just like you. Uh, and then Peter then preaches the gospel to all who will listen and something crazy happens. So this is Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 48. And it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. And the Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit had also been poured out on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter responded, surely no one can refuse the water for these here to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? He then ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they asked him to stay on a few days. Uh, so really important things happening. And, and you can kind of say that there's, there's a twofold interpretation to Peter's vision. Number one is the, the kind of obvious one. Um, the, the dietary, the cleanliness laws of the of the old covenant no longer apply under Christ. And so now Peter's being told, hey, there is no clean or unclean food. Um, go for it, is is kind of the idea here. But the the other meaning, and and, and in some ways the deeper meaning, is that the Gentiles are no longer unclean. And for a long time it was the people of Israel are Yahweh's chosen people. And they worship him correctly and no one else does. There's kind of the God fears that we hear a little bit about, like uh, Cornelius is one of them. Um, but for the most part, it's you, you must be a Jew and we are God's chosen people. Now, God's salvation is open to everyone. And God proves this by, again, before they even baptize them with water, he fills these Gentile believers with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so, and that's what leads Peter to baptize him because he's like, how can I not baptize them? If God is clearly affirming this with the gift of the Holy Spirit, then how can I not affirm this with uh, the, the rite of water baptism? And next week, the church is going to meet and discuss about whether or not God is allowed to do what God just did, which is kind of a weird way of putting it, but that's pretty much exactly what they do. Uh, but that's next week, listeners. That That wraps it up for the New Testament readings this week. But Megan has a few Psalms that she is going to take us through here in a second. 
Okay, so we have three psalms this week, 13, 14, and 15. All three are written by David, and they're super short, so you can just enjoy them, think through them. Um, So I will say I wanted to talk a little bit about Psalm 13 because it is a psalm of lament. So lament is an idea that's been around a long time, but sometimes not always talked about, but it's really helpful to us. So over a third of the psalms are devoted to lament. And then there are other places in the Bible. For example, there's a whole book called Lamentations. And lament is, it's really a language of wrestling honestly with our pain and expressing hope in God. So it's something that helps us when we're in a difficult place and and still have hope, even though we're like, God, this is how I truly feel. So there's kind of these four key elements of lament, which is one, turning to God in prayer, two, bringing our complaints, three, asking boldly, and four, choosing to trust or praise. So learning to lament helps us to be honest with God and then offer authentic rejoicing. And so it really takes faith to lament rather than ignore God in our suffering. And the biblical writers have beautiful ways of showing us this. So I'll just close this out by reading Psalm 13 because it's only six verses and you can hear that pattern here. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God, light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So enjoy those few psalms this week. Yeah, like Megan said, they're really short, but that kind of, I almost really prefer the short psalms because it lets you really meditate on on them and you're not kind of having to like make it through it the whole way. So, and then just the idea of, yeah, I love the idea that it is not wrong to lament and to wrestle through our faith. And, and David demonstrates that beautifully in the psalms. All right, well, that wraps it up for the Bible study portion. Let's talk about what we learned today. For me, this is kind of, it's an interesting one because it has to be, there's not one specific way that we do this, but I was thinking of the story of Peter and like I said, I'm thinking about next week, how we're going to get into basically deciding whether or not they're allowed to do this. Um, But we also get this week, we get a lot of tension this week. So there's the tension between the Jews and the straight up Gentiles about whether or not they should be allowed in. Uh, There's the tension between the Jews and the Samaritans, which we see Philip kind of break through. Um, and there's also the tension between the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrew Jews, because like, well, you know, they're, they're the ones who sided with the Greeks a long time ago. And so it makes me think of what are the ways that we gatekeep our faith? And, and what I mean by that is what are the ways where we kind of prejudge people and we don't let them be a part of our Christian communities because of whether it's things that they've done, ways that they act, kind of the people they are. And, and this can be anything from kind of um, the racism that a lot of us will still struggle with, and like how how do we treat people of other races? How do we treat people of other socioeconomic backgrounds? Right? Do we do we show like James talks about this? Do we show favoritism to the poor? Do we show favoritism to the to the rich? Are are we treating those people differently? Uh, do we treat men and women differently? And, and there's kind of a, a there's a bunch of different ways. And so I guess for me the application is um, pray, seek the Lord. And ask how do how do I gatekeep my faith? How do I gatekeep your word and and help me to repent? Help me to turn away from doing that. So that that would be kind of my 
short application for today. I love that. That's that is so great, Evan. Thank you. Um, for me, I think for me, it's it's this example of um, like my biggest pride takeaway. There's so much here, but my favorite is is this example of the disciples and Stephen. That what would it look like for me to get to that point where um, I know and I love and follow Jesus so well that when I am faced with suffering for His sake, that I'm actually rejoicing. Like, I'm just glad that this happened to me or I'm being persecuted. I rejoice because I am wor- even even considered worthy at all to suffer for the name of Jesus, whereas we are so afraid or, you know, whatever it may be. But what would it look like for me to really to live in such a way that um, that if it comes my way in any form, that I'm ready and I'm and I, I embrace it because I'm now in in the group of people who like, wow, God thought so much of my faith that he could test it. And it was found worthy, you know, to suffer for the sake of Christ. So I love their examples in that. No, it's a yeah. beautiful, a beautiful reminder that so much of the Bible shows us that suffering isn't, um, it's not worthless. But God does, God, God allows beautiful things, or God makes beautiful things rise out of the ashes of pain. So love that. All right. Well, our final section for today, we had a question come in, so we're going to go ahead and answer that. Okay, so this says, I've been wondering about ghosts and spirit and Nephilim, really all sorts of strange things. Uh, Recently, I started listening to the Blurry Creatures podcast. Neither me nor uh, Megan had heard of that one, so we can't vouch whether or not uh, that's a good one or not. But uh, it says, the disciples think that Jesus is a ghost when he walks on water. And this is in Matthew 14 and Mark 6. They also believe Jesus is a ghost when he appears in the upper rooms. This is Luke 24. This is when he, he shows them his hands and his feet. In both of these interactions, Jesus doesn't say ghosts don't exist, but rather says a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. Does this mean that ghosts do exist? And if they do, are they neutral? Are there neutral ghosts or only good or evil? I guess what I'm saying is that I know there are angels and demons. Are there also spirits and ghosts that are just people who haven't gone to their eternal home yet? Um, okay, so I, I was talking with Megan about this beforehand, but I, I've, I've, I've gone I've become very fond of the language of, you know, there's open-handed and close-handed things that we believe. So there's things that um, Christians can disagree with that the Bible's not super clear on. And I think there's things that the Bible um, is very clear on and there's central tenets of our faith and you can't really be a Christian and, and disagree on them. Uh, this issue I think is very open-handed. So there's there's not very much clarity at all. Um, so here's here's what we'll say. And me and Megan both had the same thought of on the question of do ghosts exist um what about samuel (laughs) so in (laughs) so in the old testament i don't remember what chapter it's in but it's in the in the book of samuel um saul is the king samuel the prophet has died and saul goes to a necromancer who at this point has been outlawed she should she should have been killed or at least banished from israel but she's not and saul goes and he wants her to he wants to commune with the spirit of samuel um, and here's the thing, it works. So clearly, clearly something is something there is possible. It's a wicked thing that Saul does. Um, but we, I, the the best way to describe Samuel, I guess, at that point is kind of as as a ghost. He's not flesh and blood, um, but he still is the the person of Samuel who's been summoned by um, by an act of evil that Saul is asking this this woman to do. So because of that. I would say at least one ghost we kind of, and, and, and ghost also carries just a bunch of baggage because of like, you know, there's ghost stories and all those different things. So when I say ghost, I don't mean like, don't think, um, 
all of the different things that that word can entail. I guess what I mean here is, um, is it possible for a spirit who is not flesh and blood, but is the person, but is it, but is a human person, um, to interact with the world? And I think we see that we see that one time in scripture. I would say we don't see it a lot, so I don't think that this is a super common thing. Like, so I'm not like saying like you know ghost hunting or all those different things. Um, and and the rest of it kind of just comes down to. I, I I don't interpret, and again, like I'm saying, this is very open-handed. Um, I don't interpret the doctrine that we get as far as what happens to us after we die as we kind of wander around earth and then get called up to heaven or get called down to hell. I don't think that's what the Bible describes. I, I think it, you know, like Jesus famously on the cross, what does he tell the um the the thief on the cross he, he he tells him that today you'll be with me in paradise so i i don't think some of the some of the ways we talk about ghosts today is like oh they just need to like they need to move on from something and then they can go on to their final rest i don't think that's what's going on here um i do think it's telling that the one time we see a ghost in scripture is again it's not a good thing it's a wicked thing that saul is doing um but it at least opens up the possibility that there there is some way that this happens at least once. Again, I don't think it's a very common thing, um, but I think I can't fully close the door on it and say, no, there's nothing resembling ghosts because again, in scripture, we see something like that. So Megan, I don't know if you have additional thoughts or not. I agree with everything you've said. Sometimes there are these questions like <laughs> there's this there's this one story I did find. It's in 1 Samuel 28, if you want to look that up. Um, and it is really interesting because Samuel says to Saul, well, why did you disturb my rest? <laughs> so, right, which is like, a classic ghost like, line. Like, come on, I'm sleeping. Please do not wake me up. I am tired. You know, and then the, what's also interesting, though, in the New Testament, when Jesus is raised from the dead, okay, it does say that some of the saints who had fallen asleep, you know, had are they do come out of their graves. I they, forgot about They walk that. around. Yeah. So you're like, what? <laughs> so I, I can't, I mean... You know what? This is this is a good question. It's worthy of investigation. Um, but we don't know why that happens because, again, the thief on the cross is a perfect example. Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. But there are theological debates about what paradise would mean there. We won't get into it right now. But um, the question about, you know, angels and demons, are there spirits and ghosts? I will say we do know that there are spiritual forces of there are angels there are demons, there are evil spirits. Those are all things that are true according to scripture, but they are not the same things as what would be like a person, right? Because they are spiritual beings that are different. And so um, Hebrews 9.27 says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, and then he's talking about the sacrifice of Jesus. But really, um, it shows that we understand that we do only die one time. So we know that, okay, and that but what happens after, I think, is the question. But regardless, we know there are firm doctrines about heaven and hell. But the question about ghosts is another matter. And then when Jesus is walking on the water, it is true they think he's a ghost. But some of that might have to do with like their fears about water and sea monsters and ancient Near Eastern gods with you know being angry in water and stuff like that. So that could have to do with that. But anyway, so that is a good question, like some of these crazy stories and, and things. So yeah, I, I love yeah. getting these kind of questions where it makes you kind of have to think and rehab. I totally forgot about that, but you're right. Like <laughs> yes. the saints coming back up out of the grave. Do you interpret that as like, are they ghosts in the sense that they don't have physical form at this point? Or is it that their actual bodies have been resurrected and reanimated by God? 
um, which gets into a whole like zombie zombies thing. Yeah, it's, it's a whole it's it's yeah. You see, oh man, Abraham a, and Lazarus. I mean, there's another story in there. Yeah, there's but, a whole there's a whole yeah. bunch. All all oh. that to say, sorry, we can't answer definitively. That's kind of the. I feel like a lot of the questions we get. They don't have definitive answers because if they if they did, then we would you know you could just look it up really easily. Yeah. So a lot of these are just kind of opinions. So those are those are our opinions. Hopefully that was interesting or helpful in some way. Uh, but that does wrap it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, we are a podcast of the Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of the Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media page. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to financially contribute to the ministry that the Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right hand corner. And hey, thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.